Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED lights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by James Daynard. James, what's up, man? Oh, just hanging out in the sunshine. And I, I got to fly to Seattle after this. So <laughs> no, I, 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 I want to stay where I am, but that's not in the cards today. Where? What are you heading up there to do? Uh, we got to walk some properties. We're doing our market update. Uh, we have an investor class. And then uh, we have our ho- our Heat and Daynard holiday party, which is always a fun time. We, we, we like to wild out on the holidays. Well, for anyone listening to this, we are recording this uh, a couple weeks in advance, given the holidays. But uh, so uh, you know that we're recording this in late December. But what is your what's your holiday party plan? Well, typically, and COVID kind of has messed this up. We used to throw big house parties at one of our flips or our new builds. That's awesome. They're pretty wild, uh, and we have a good time. But this year, we we rented out. It's it's cool. It's like a bunch of games. So they have like bowling, top golf, you know, all the different things, and so. We're doing a little bit more formal. Uh, next year, I will be going back to a house party, DJs and all sorts of things. Man, I'm missing you by like three days. I'm going to be in Seattle on Friday. Oh, dude. Yeah, because I, I leave Wednesday night. Oh, that sucks. All right. Well, that's too bad. But today we do have an awesome show for you. I don't know. Uh, I think Henry hosted the first time that we had Taylor Marr on, but uh we have Taylor Marr, who's the deputy chief economist for Redfin and probably one of the people whose research I follow most closely. He is an expert on the housing market, everything. But today we really go into a lot of migration conversation and about how we, you know, what happened during the pandemic and if those trends are continuing now or what new trends are emerging that investors and aspiring investors should be paying attention to. James, was there anything in particular you really enjoyed and think listeners should uh, keep an ear out for? Well, I think it's just really tracking these trends that aren't like, you know, I think a lot of us as investors, we look at our local markets and the housing, what's going on right now and what we're doing. And the most important thing for investors is to switch and pivot. 
your plan up. And, and I, I know I learned that in 2008 is like to look at all these outside things. So like migration is, that was something I never really looked at before besides my local market. But as an investor, I want to keep investing and you can track these trends in really place. You don't have to, it's not always about the hottest trending areas. It's like, where are the people moving? And so the, the migration is a huge factor in that. And it, and I think it's it, it it's just important that people open their eyes and look at the big picture, and then it tells you you know how to invest in the next two to four years because you want to you, you want to invest where the people are going. Yeah, absolutely, that's great advice, and I think you you all can learn a lot not only about how, what's happening over the last couple of years, but just the general mindset um, and and some new information that you should be considering as you think about your own personalized investing strategy. So, all right, so we're going to take a quick break and then we will bring Taylor on after that. Taylor Marr, who is the Deputy Chief Economist at Redfin, welcome back to On The Market. Thanks for having me. So great to be here. Well, I think we said this when we were talking before the show, but your your first episode is one of our most popular ever, so we're very uh, grateful to have you back on the show. We had you first on back, in, I think it was like May or June, and the housing market was looking very different than it does now. So can you just give us your take on what's happened over the second half of 2022? Yes. Yeah, so- I mean, the first half was very interesting because already by that time, interest rates rose substantially and we were seeing a lot of leading indicators take a dive south. The market was reacting. Uh, That was sort of act one with mortgage rates adjusting uh, to some of the actions of the Fed. Now we're in stage two, which is really that inflation was more worrisome in the second half of the year that caused a bit more aggression on the part of the Fed to, you know, raise rates. They were hiking faster than anticipated. As a result, interest rates rose much faster, um, even since the summer. And really, they just were more volatile. So they shot up during the months of, uh, I believe it was August and July and down at the same time, about a percentage point swing. And they've done that now twice. So mortgage rate volatility hit a 35-year high. And that aspect in particular really explains what's happened in the market the last six months Because as interest rates have fluctuated dramatically, even after, you know, they rose and were cooling the market, we've also watched other indicators play catch up. So home values, for example, have been falling at one of their fastest paces since 2009, according to the Case-Shiller Index. That's in reaction to these rising interest rates. But also we see more of the short-term leading indicators demand really bounce back and forth alongside this uh, rise and fall of interest rates. So a couple of examples, uh, sellers have increasingly had to drop their price as they don't get an offer that they want and rates are higher. So they drop their price to, to meet buyers where they're at and what they can afford. But then when interest rates fall, they're not having to do as many price drops. And that ping ponging has happened uh, for sellers. A lot of them have been delisting their homes or jumping back into the market and relisting their homes when interest rates fall. And then the same as true of buyers. They'll rush in, start touring homes, maybe even shift uh, when they're making offers after rates are falling and they get a little bit more uh, of you know a tailwind from the lower rates. Uh, so really, it's been just one of volatility, if I were to pick one word to sum up uh, the last six months. And Taylor, some of your work that I, I enjoy the most is all about the different regional variations in the housing market. But the assessment you just gave us is that true across the board 
or are you seeing this more are you seeing more volatility in certain markets compared to others we definitely are seeing more volatility in you know at a large scale if you think about the last 10 years you also see large volatility in places uh, where it's easy to build housing so places like phoenix texas you know nashville these places are more volatile because it's easier to increase supply it's easier for investors to swoop in uh, and also make the market a little bit more volatile. But that's even been true just on a, a more narrow time scale of the last six months to a year, that it's these pandemic boom towns, particularly in the mountain region like Boise, Salt Lake City, uh, Phoenix, all of those places, Vegas as well, have boomed, but they've also cooled down sharply. Um, as interest rates have bounced back and forth, they haven't actually seen as much of a bounce back in demand meaning that they have continued to cool sharply in reaction to still the yet higher rates. I think part of that is because investors have been pulling back and you know sellers have been pulled back and a little bit of change in interest rates in the near term, I think has already scared off a lot of the big players where they sense there's just a lot of risk out there for now. So those markets have seen a bigger back off. Uh, the other markets out on the Northeast and the Midwest those have seen more resilience when interest rates fall a little bit from their highs. And that's marking some of that national volatility we're seeing. Taylor, I, I, I operate out of the Seattle market. So it's a tech, uh, you know, we, we saw a lot of appreciation the last 24 months or not so much the last six, but <laughs> I guess the last 28 to 30 months. We, and we've definitely seen a pretty drastic pullback from the peak pricing, you know, a lot of the pricing is down 25, 30%, not from medium, but from that peak, peak spring pricing. Um, and then what we've kind of seen recently is it's kind of leveled off with like a slow trickle going on through the market. And, you know, part of what we're looking at as far as investors goes is, you know, what we, we saw a big drop from the, this, the seller settlement because people got so impatient with the days on markets that they were cutting price after two, three weeks and now what we've seen is the, the pricing is actually kind of leveled out a little bit and the days on market are being consistent around 30 to 45 days in our market. And, and now things are selling very close to list, or I would say within a two to three percent ratio at that point. Do you see, you know, we've seen like hot markets like Phoenix, Boise, you know, even San Diego, these these like hot bubbly markets. And then we've seen the tech ones that bubbled up because of the job growth. Do you think that those are going to start leveling out as well? Or do you, do you predict that those could still decline uh, even with those big drops that we've seen in the last six months? That's an excellent question. I know a lot of people in Seattle are wondering this. I talked to a lot of reporters there. Uh, I have a lot of friends in Seattle because I recently lived there um, and for the last 10 years been most of my home base. So I'm pretty familiar with Seattle. And what I know about Seattle is it does have these floors when financial markets start to recover. So there's a lot of tech wealth in the area. And as stocks like Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook recover a little bit, that can really help support demand uh, by quite a bit. Uh, it's harder to see that in the data because there's also this psychological component. Uh, just like when there's a rise of layoffs, you know, not everyone is laid off. The layoffs are really small, but there is a psychological ripple effect that a lot of people might, you know, have increased fear and anxiety about acting in, uh, you know, the real estate market is the big decision. So with that said, markets like Seattle and San Francisco, 
that are very expensive and that haven't been characterized as much of a boom and bust like Boise or Phoenix, Boise and Phoenix are relatively small markets. So it doesn't take a, a lot of activity to make a big change. Whereas Seattle and San Francisco, it's harder to get that magnitude of, of difference. Now, Seattle, it's fallen in home values from its May peak through September, according to Case Schiller, by about 9% already. And based on more recent data, I believe that's continuing by at least a few percentage points. So we have seen a big adjustment from you know, the higher interest rates, but also it's been really a trifecta in Seattle of three things. There's been higher interest rates. It's already an expensive market, so it's more sensitive to that. Financial market conditions with a lot of, as I mentioned, tech stocks, as the NASDAQ is down more than 30% from the start of the year, that weighs much more heavily in markets like Seattle or San Francisco, where there's a high presence concentration of tech workers. The third thing is migration. So in 2021, Seattle posted a net outflow of people leaving the area for the first time in more than a decade. And uh, there was really just an untethering from remote work that allowed a lot of people to leave. It continued to get an influx of people from the Bay Area because they were facing the same uh, decision. But a lot of people went to eastern Washington and even to places like Phoenix. So now, you know, there is sort of this element of higher interest rates are causing people to sort of freeze in place and not move as much. Uh, but as interest rates have fallen, we've definitely heard from agents on the ground as recently as last week that buyers are jumping back in. They're eager to get out there and, you know, they, they might have pulled back uh, extra quickly uh, as things started to turn south. Um, but they're still there. They're sideline buyers. There's a lot of income eligible, uh, those with sufficient down payments where they could be buying a home if they just found a good deal. It's, the problem is it's taken a while for sellers to sort of meet buyers where they are. They're usually slower to drop their price, slower to react to market conditions. And once they fully do, there's enough buyers to really start to stabilize the market. So I'm in the camp that things are reacting sharper in Seattle, maybe than we even realized, but there is an element of stability that's sort of on on the plate right here. Uh, and one of the key things as well with, uh, with this feature in Seattle is there have been some homes that have dropped uh, even more than 20%. So I looked at some homes that actually recently closed in April and May when prices peaked and looking at their Redfin estimate or their estimate, indeed, some of them have lost more than 20% of their home value, which wipes away almost all of their equity. That's scary. Uh, now, thankfully, most of those buyers probably won't be moving for you know 10 years. So it's not going to impact them too dramatically unless they lose their job or have some sort of uh, other economic shock. So I don't think there's a wave of supply to hit the market. And then there's also this element that, yeah, maybe sellers aren't having to drop their price as much, but there is still a lot of bargaining power that buyers are, are building up. And they're able to ask for increasing seller concessions, which means that maybe they're getting an additional 3% back uh, from the seller to do things like home repairs or buy down their mortgage rate. And this is sort of a missed feature in a lot of the data right now because no one is capturing you know, here's what a list price was. Let's say you listed your home for a million dollars in Seattle. Maybe you had to drop your price down to 900000 Then maybe you sold it for under asking price at eight fifty. dollars uh, But then maybe you had to give back another fifty in seller concessions. So if we're looking at any of the one metrics, we might not capture that full effect of how really the housing market has adjusted for this particular seller. And, uh, and so part of that missing feature is these seller concessions that are on the rise as well.
Yeah, and we sell a lot of different type of product in, in, in our market. And I think our market is probably very similar to Austin, San Francisco. I think we're seeing this. I, I've been tracking those to kind of see what the trends are in there. I'm like, okay, we're, we're, we're all in the same boat at this point. Uh, but you, it, I think that's a great point is it, you have to be careful about the data because I know like on every new, con- we, we do sell a lot of new construction product, townhomes. Every deal we're doing, the rates are getting bought down by the builders or the sellers where they, the, that that's what we're really pushing on is to buy that rate down. And it's costing, I mean, anywhere between 25 and $35,000 in credits, which if you think about that, it's about anywhere between two and 5% of the actual sale price. And so it's kind of like when uh, apartment sellers go to sell their their, their apartment deals or, and they want to pack the performa and they give away all the concessions up front, but that, but on paper, it looks like it's really good because they gave away a free month. And it's, it's, it, I feel like it's throwing the data off. So when we're looking at transactions, we're going, okay, well, how much closing costs are, are actually coming off there? And is that the real value of the property? Because these buy downs are expensive and, and it's really something that it, it's became normal, at least in the new construction, not as much in the, fix and flip or the renovated product or the home, but in new construction, it's, it's, it's fairly common. Just for everyone listening, just to, to make everyone sure everyone understands is basically what Taylor and James are saying is that even though in a market like Seattle, where the data is reflecting price drops of Taylor, I think you said about 9%, according to Case Schiller, and this is happening in a lot of markets across the country. But it sounds like what you're saying, Taylor and James, is that the real number might actually be more considerable because sellers are giving, you know, concessions that have a monetary value up to twenty or thirty thousand dollars, like James just said, but that's not reflected in the sale price. So in terms of actual buyer leverage, it might even be more in a market like Seattle than nine percent. It could be eleven percent. It could be twelve percent. Um and in whatever market you're operating it in, it might actually be, you know, two or three more points than what's actually reflected in the data. Absolutely. And going back to the mortgage rate buy down, so this has been something that has been increasingly common this year. Um, looking at data from Freddie Mac, they report on mortgage rates as well as you know what points are being paid on a loan in order to buy down the, the rate. And it did rise to nearly a 20-year high for different loans like a 15-year fixed, for a 30-year fixed also you know has risen to about a decade high. Uh, they stopped reporting on that, so it's hard to know what's happening in real time now. But uh, but this is an important because a lot of builders are also going through this tactic to try and make it where buyers aren't scared off by a high monthly payment when they plug in today's interest rates. So by buying down the rate, they can make a monthly payment much more favorable. In fact, it is so favorable that buying down the points uh, is even better for a buyer than just getting that cash down in a lower sale price. So it actually is pretty great to overall increase demand of buyers, the pool of buyers that could afford on a monthly payment that home. The problem, though, becomes buying, paying points on a loan is effectively placing a bet that you're going to lock into this rate and that rates won't be falling. And what we've seen in, you know, again, mortgage rate volatility, the fluctuation of mortgage rates from you know, one month to the next is at a 35-year high. And this means that the chances that rates fall by a percentage point uh, are higher now than they have been in a very long time. I don't think it's likely that rates ever go back to, you know, sub uh, 3%, you know, 2.5% that happened during the pandemic. That was a unique circumstance with the Fed pumping billions of dollars into mortgage-backed securities, uh, creating, you know, an abnormal market for mortgages. But now going ahead, 
rates could go higher and you know you would be really happy that you paid points on a loan and you don't face uh, higher borrowing costs. That would work out really well if, if rates never fall below where you are. But if rates do fall um, back to, let's say, 5%, which is possible if we enter into a recession, rates normally do fall during a recession, uh, then you effectively you know, gave up tens of thousands of dollars to bet on that rate not falling effectively. You might not see it that way. There's refinancing costs. There's other things um, at play there as well. But uh, this is sort of a hidden feature also that's impacting the market um, that you know people might not always have full control or negotiation over. That, that's such a good point. I, I haven't heard it articulated that way before. But basically, the reason you accept and want a seller concession of someone buying down your rate is because your monthly payment is too high and you're saying, okay, you're going to get my payment down to a, an acceptable level. And in exchange, I'm willing to pay the price that you're asking for. But if rates fall in the future, then you're basically the benefit that you negotiated is moot. And you're still paying that higher price that the seller wanted. And the benefit they gave you is sort of negated. Yeah, at least in part, you know, and, and the flip side of that is really adjustable rate mortgages, um, which we've also seen rise in tandem with paying points on a loan. So there's effectively a rise of on both sides of the equation of people placing a bet effectively that either rates will stay high and not fall in the future or that they'll go low and not rise too much in the future. Uh, so the adjustable rate mortgage camp, which makes up about uh, one in 10 buyers as of as of lately, um, they've been opting for adjustable rate mortgages according to uh, Mortgage Bankers Association. And that rise of the use of arms is basically, again, placing a bet that rates won't shoot up much higher or significantly higher than you have now, making that your borrowing costs in let's say five years after the fixed exchange period um, expires that you'll be able to afford that payment. And so if rates do fall um, or even stay steady, an adjust rate mortgage is sort of the other side of that equation that um, would be beneficial for someone. So uh, Taylor, like as we're talking about like kind of markets and, and things moving around, you, you pointed out something very interesting like in Seattle or, you know, I know a lot of these tech areas or San Francisco, the population went down as well, that people were moving out over 2023. And a lot of that was the migration and the work from home, uh, where people could be flexible, you know, like it's a, if you have the opportunity to leave Seattle and work in a sunny place, a lot of people like to take that, that, uh, they will take that opportunity. Do you see with the, with the migration, we've seen this rapid, like in Phoenix, uh, Florida, Texas, a lot of people have moved into these States and we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, inflation rise in those areas, pricing rise in those areas, do you predict as as we're going into, you know, as the rates increase and we're looking like we could go into a recession, do you see that the migration could a start falling dramatically? Because, you know, as as people get concerned about their welfare and their jobs, they, they stop moving around. They want to spend less money and they want to be more stable. But also, do you see maybe a reverse migration coming back with a lot of these companies? I know like in in Washington or even in New York, I've read a few times that these companies want people back in the office and they want bodies back in the chairs. Do you see that some of these markets, Austin, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, do you see that migration reversing over the next 12 to 24, even though it's really expensive to live there? Or do you see like the migration pattern still going consistent where people are chasing affordability and, and more, 
you know, comfort, com- being comfortable in, the, in the, the condition that they want to live in. You're right to call out this dichotomy of, on the one hand, you have people, you know, that are chasing affordability. And that really is what dominated the pandemic during you know, 2020, 2021. People were untethered from their workplace and able to re- relocate, move remotely. Um, that also was coupled with a unique circumstance where rates fell and, and made an affordability uh, opportunity even better where you can move and lock in this lower rate. And so this flood of people leaving California, uh, which I think the state lost population during the pandemic for the first time in, uh, I believe it's a century, if I have that right from the census. And a lot of these people went into adjacent states, Nevada um, and Arizona and uh, Oregon even, and that created a home buying frenzy in these areas. So that, that was really a chase for affordability. Most of the people surveying said uh, that they were moving for housing-related reasons. Typically, people primarily move for job-related reasons to get a better paying job or job opportunities. But the pandemic, we saw that um, take over from, uh, for housing-related reasons. And it was really one of affordability. People wanted bigger space to work from home, you know, larger yards, suburban house, uh, things like that. And that move for affordability impacted all of these markets, uh, pushing up prices. Now, the flip side of that is that prices grew so much in places like Austin that they really make it less attractive today than it was two years ago uh, for someone, you know, looking for affordability. So in effect, some of the people that have already taken advantage of that affordability opportunity um, have sort of mitigated the current affordability opportunity, uh, especially as you mentioned, inflation costs have uh, been more than double in Phoenix than they have in LA, and as well as Atlanta or Tampa than they have in New York. And part of this is due to the migration trends that have taken place during the pandemic. Uh, but as these places get more expensive with not just housing, but other cost of living at restaurants to pay for you know, the workers, the increased demand, um, that also has weighed in making these uh, places as attractive as they used to be. At the same time, I don't think we're going to see a big Uh, return to these cities that lost people. Um, We don't see too much of a slowing down. Instead, what we do see is we see the places like Salt Lake City that had a boom, they're past their boom period. And that has been slowing down uh, to basically not quite lose people, but essentially not gain as many people um, as they did a year ago. And the same story is true in places like Austin. So a lot of these pandemic boom towns, Boise as well, uh, migration has slowed into them, uh, but it's not that people are flocking back to places like Seattle and San Francisco. They're just losing slightly fewer people. Now, going back 60 uh, years or so in the migration data, what we know is that during recessions and periods of higher interest rates, people are, uh, they have economic anxiety and they just freeze in place. So they don't make these big moves as often during the uh, immediate years of, you know, an economic uh, slowdown or crisis. And so as such, our prediction for next year is that this is also going to be the case. We're entering into um, a tough economy with the Fed having interest rates higher and and holding them above 5% most likely. And as that happens, you know, it'll keep mortgage rates elevated and uh, soften the labor market. All of those things create conditions where it's less favorable to move and relocate um, on net than it was, you know, right now or maybe over the past year. So we do anticipate a, a slight slowdown to migration, but to remain elevated above pre-pandemic norms because of this untethering remote work and still 
people do want to move for some affordability still, especially if you have that flexibility. But then there's this other component of, it doesn't mean all bad news for the San Francisco, New York, Chicago's of the world. Uh, if you look at Gen Z and some surveys, the number one cities that they want to go to uh, are still the same cities of San Francisco, New York. And coming out of the great financial crisis, now there was a big hit to those cities in the immediate years, but the second the recovery started, they led the recovery. They led in job growth. A lot of people relocated to San Francisco. Um, it was, I mean, we know it now as having lost 180,000 people during the pandemic, but during 2014, it was booming. There was a lot of job growth. It was early in the recovery. And a lot of young millennials were launching their careers, moving to cities like San Francisco or, or New York or Seattle. Um, it's just that they got so expensive by not building housing that now they're losing people. Uh, so I do think coming out of this economic slowdown, when things start to pick up again, we might see some Gen Z younger people still move for their careers. Uh, they're less concerned about housing costs than you know maybe the older millennials are who are starting families and left these cities. Uh, but it doesn't mean that that will completely offset the loss that's taken place during the pandemic. Taylor, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I've seen some of, I'm guessing, similar surveys about Gen Z and how they're moving to relatively high priced cities, which to me makes a lot of sense. If you're young, these are attractive cities. There's a lot to do. They're high paying jobs. You know, that makes a lot of sense. But for the people who were migrating during the pandemic, you mentioned millennials. Is that the demographic that was moving most, like people who are just starting their families or was it ubiquitous, like everyone was moving? Yeah, the census recently released uh, back in September, I believe, or October, some data on the demographics of everyone at the county level, uh, you know, down to the age, race and other other aspects about them. So I spent some time digging into that data to see how did different counties change during the pandemic? And the you know counties, the 20 most populous uh, metro areas, uh, those urban counties are really what drove the exodus of migration. Uh, so New York County, San Francisco County, King County, Washington, uh, these are the, the urban counties in these large cities that saw all of these people leave. So who left? Well, we know a few things about them. We know that the demographic of millennials, so those basically in their 25 to 44 range, um, that age group is what drove the exodus out of these large urban counties. And in particular, uh, non-Hispanic white households that are starting families. So those are the ones that either suburbanize to, to become a homeowner, um, to look for more space, and uh, or to move somewhere more affordable, places like you know Tampa or Atlanta where a lot of inbound migration took place as well. So that's primarily what we know about who moved. There's also an element uh, that was a little bit more unique now uh, during the pandemic, which is politics. So it was a big political response during the pandemic about how do we handle things around shutting down businesses, enforcing mask wearing, you know, all types of different regulations at the state level that took place. And if we look at who left California, it was disproportionately Republicans that left California, registered Republicans that left California into nearby states or that left places like Seattle and, and Western Washington uh, into Idaho. And so there was also this political sorting that really was amplified. That's been taking place since about the 80s, um, which is increasingly why, you know, 
the place we live describes our politics uh, now more than ever. But especially during the pandemic, uh, you know, you increasingly were impacted by your local politics or the state level politics. And that played a role as well in migration with who might have moved. Now, going ahead, I don't think that's going to play as large of a role. There's less of this um, impact, even in spite of things like Roe v. Wade or other uh, other political aspects at the state level. It still is that taxes dominate and affordability dominates with, you know, a high preference for what states people move to. You know, I always think about this migration because I've been talking to a lot of people, you know, from Washington. I do know a lot of people that moved out of that state. I actually, you know, uh, I I split my time now between Washington and a sunny place. Uh, I had nothing to do with politics. I had all to do with sun. But uh, I wonder if and this is going to be a hard data. This isn't something you can like put data behind. But like the, the or I guess you could. But the the relocation remorse is what I'm calling it, because I do know some people that have moved states kind of drastically and they just kind of did it because they're like, I can do this because everyone's doing it. And now they're locked in because their, their homes have depreciated down and they kind of figured out that they picked the wrong city. And it's like, and they're kind of stuck like where they're like, Oh man, I, it, it's not that they would have not relocated again or sold their home again, but they just picked the, they did it on such a rush and the market was also so hot in all these neighborhoods that they had to do, you know, a lot of home buyers, unfortunately, last 24 months didn't get to think about their purchase and they had to kind of just get into a house. And I, I wonder what that's going to do as far as, you know, because they, they, they went into either, you know, I guess some of them could become rentals if it was a, a more affordable market. But like, I know a lot of people in Idaho specifically where they moved out there, they loved it for like six to months, 12 months, and then they go, you know what, I kind of want to be back towards the ocean. And but now they're stuck because that market has deflated so quick. Do you, do you guys see any of that? Go, like, I, I was wondering if that's going to actually cause like some sort of wave of foreclosures because people are just gonna say, No, I don't want this anymore. I'm just I'm just leaving. I don't care what it is. I have no equity. I don't care what my payment is. I want to get back to the city. It's a great question. Uh, because you're right, there's not great hard data on this um, to know, okay, is the seller someone who recently relocated and that's the motivation for seller? What we do know is we carry out a lot of surveys at Redfin and we ask our agents, our customers and, and the general public uh, different questions. And during this migration surge of the pandemic, we did ask people, are you happier uh, after you moved? And also how about affordability? And despite the run-up of prices in, in 20 30% in places like Boise, most people actually saved money on their monthly payment and came out ahead in terms of their monthly mortgage relative to their income. And in part, that's because, well, it's higher-income people that are moving into places like Boise able to afford these. Um, and we can look at data from HMDA, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, to see uh, what about the income changes of people that move. So... There was an affordability component that might be driving some of this happiness that people felt like they're getting more disposable income now after their relocation. But by and large, people have been satisfied with uh, with their moves. You'll definitely hear regrets. In fact, early on in the pandemic, the New York Times ran the story of someone who left New York City and, and bought a, a farm and they discovered a bee's nest and they didn't know what to do. So they just sold the home. <laughs> 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 So anyway, you know, you'll hear stories like this, but they're not they're not the norm. Uh, And and overall, I think people have been more happy. In fact, people do desire to migrate more than more than they do currently. Mobility has declined for the last uh, five decades, actually six decades now. 
And as a result, people just aren't moving as much. And that's not great for the American economy. There's a lot of reasons for that, such as the rise of occupational licensing makes it harder to move across state lines. Uh, But that said, what the pandemic did was it lowered the bar to move. You didn't have to, uh, you know, cut social ties because they were already cut by, you know, social distancing, not going to churches and schools and all types of other social institutions. Uh, you were already sheltered in place. You weren't commuting to work. So by and large, the cost to moving in terms of the social costs were much lower. So that made it where people who you know really should be moving but are hesitant to because of, well, they're kind of they have their situation set up. Uh, the pandemic kind of severed those ties and allowed people to relocate um, at a in an easier way. And a lot of people came out ahead because of that. So on net, I think it's good news. There's definitely regrets. I personally did relocate as well. I left Seattle during April of 2021, moved to Northern Virginia. I love the sun now. It's wonderful. Uh, it's a super sunny day today, and it makes me happy waking up to the sun during the winter time. Uh, but I, I can relate to those buyers who it was a hectic market. You know, you kind of have to take um, some compromises. So we didn't get our dream home, but we got a, a better home than we did had in urban Seattle. Uh, but that said, you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to move next year or the next two years um, and could always convert to a rental if I, you know, want to relocate somewhere um, and, and rent even. So there are opportunities that people have um, to sort of mitigate some of those challenges. I don't think people are as much handcuffed by, by the decision. Um, and renting is really a great option. I do think that's why we're seeing a little bit more of people leave the rental market and, you know, remain renters uh, in homeownership. Um, you know, we'll probably take a, a little bit of a hit in the gains uh, over the next year because of that, too. Awesome. Well, th- this has been fascinating, uh, Taylor. And it sounds like, you know, all these migration trends are super interesting and relevant to homeowners and real estate investors alike. Uh, it sounds like it's it's calming down a little bit and we're going to enter a new phase of migration in the U.S., which uh, we'll have to see what comes as the economy slows down. But before we get out of here, I did want to shift gears because when we were chatting before the show, you teased some short-term rental information and data that you might have. And I know James and I are eager to, to hear what you have to say. Can you tell us uh, what updates you have about that market? Yeah, so during the pandemic, we watched a boom of people buying up second homes. It more than doubled the activity overall, partly as a result of lower rates, as well as untethering. People be able to enjoy them more and, and move to places where they might have these short-term rentals. Um, but then there were some regulations that uh, were carried out by FHFA that made the cost on this uh, higher. And immediately, once those restrictions went in place, there were two separate times that this happened. Uh, we saw second home activity pull back sharply. Um, now, second home buying is, is, has fallen even faster than the overall housing market has retreated. And investors also are retreating faster than the overall market, too. And both of those together um, really are creating some uh, lack of demand that really propped up a lot of these investor markets. So, the, so markets where a lot of uh, second home buying and, and short-term rentals have been purchased are cooling off um, as well. And even we see this in Florida, if you split Florida up into the, the Gulf cities, um, like Cape Coral and, and Tampa, where there's a lot of second home buying uh, compared to places like Miami, where it's not as, uh, as common, 
you see the markets are cooling down sharper in the places that had higher concentration of second home buying. So this is posing a problem as now you know the market cools and uh, you have a lot of people pulling back from selling their home. So new listings hitting the real estate market for sale are down about 22% year over year. And these are people who basically are opting to not sell. Now, some of them are just home buyers, move up buyers who are just going to sit in place. So that doesn't matter too much. Uh, but there's also these second homeowners that maybe would normally offload their properties. But as the market is cool, they've seen home values retreat a little bit. Uh, they've decided now is not a favorable time to sell. And maybe they'll opt to move their home onto the short-term rental market or the long-term rental market. So we're seeing supply move from owner-occupied homes a little bit towards uh, short-term rental listings and long-term rental listings as well. That increased supply is really starting to bring down the overall rents. Uh, but in the short-term rental market, what we see immediately happening is really a rise of uh, vacancies and occupancy rates overall are, are declining. Um, so, so far, AirDNA has put out some great data showing that there's more short-term rental listings hitting the market. And these are people that, um, you know, maybe are having a hard time completely filling it. And, uh, and it's going to be harder to cash flow some of these short-term rental, rental properties. So there's a lot of concerns, a lot of risk about how these mortgage loans were maybe even structured during the pandemic, uh, that maybe there will be some distressed sales coming from, from these properties. Uh, I do think some of the fears out there on Twitter and, and elsewhere might be a little overblown. When we look at overall how occupancy rates have changed and even projecting in the next year, AirDNA put out an outlook, um, revenue will decrease because there's going to be fewer nights booked and with more supply, even lower uh, daily rates slightly. But overall, um, the revenue pullback isn't dramatic. And if people were planning this for a long-term investment, say 10 years, uh, you know, I think they'll be fine, most, most of the people. There were a lot of people that bought during 2020, 2021, when prices were high, and you know, they might have seen some of that equity go away, and maybe they're not cash flowing it as much as they want. Uh, but overall, you know, this is only impacting a handful of markets. So even if all of these listings were to list for sale, I don't anticipate major spillovers into like the for sale real estate market, um, you know, causing prices to crack, anything like that. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm watching evolve right now. I'm so glad you brought this up, Taylor. I've been saying on this show, people who listen probably know that I think uh, these like high price vacation areas, you know, ski areas, mountain towns, beach communities are probably at some of the greatest risk. L largely, my opinion is informed by some of your research, especially around second home demand and how you, you've shown that it went spiked like something like 90% above pre-pandemic levels. Now it's well below pre-pandemic levels. Um, and then I saw the same AirDNA data that you're, you're referencing and agreed that it's not like some crazy thing that's going to happen. They're forecasting, you know, 5% decline, something like 5% decline in, in revenue. Um, but I think the, the lesson, or at least what the takeaway for me from this is about people who are trying to get into the short-term rental industry right now, I think it could be really difficult. We're seeing like this huge increase in supply and the number of listings uh, in area and the people who have a lot of reviews and who have their operations set up and humming along are probably going to do just fine during, during this downturn. But like if you're a new listing in a time where 
you know, I think revenue for the whole industry can come down as a whole as people pull back on spending a little bit um, during a time where there's more increase uh, or more supply coming online. I just caution people about being too gung ho and overly optimistic getting into the short term rental market, particularly in these markets you're talking about. Like, I, I don't know if in a major metro it might be totally different dynamics, but in these like um, vacation rental areas, second home areas, like you said, Taylor, um, I think it, it is an area that that is riskier than the overall housing market, I should say. Yeah, we've seen a lot of inventory increase. And it, 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 it strikes, I mean, when you, when you mess with that mortgage calculator, it is expensive when you're looking at these secondary home markets. And, and I think that's where you're seeing this influx of housing. And, and also, I think people are moving around less. But I know like Palm Springs, Lake Havasu, uh, even in our Washington market, Suncadia, which is an awesome place, but th- there is, I mean, the inventory has dramatically increased in these areas a- and the amount of transactions going on, I think, you know, they're down substantially as well. It's just, it, it, it seems like those are always the first things to go. The secondary, like, you know, when you want to, when you want to save money, you want to get rid of that extra expense. And I think that the short-term rental market with it slowing down, people are just concerned or, you know, a lot of people that bought short-term rentals, they they might not have rented the way they thought they were going to rent, and they just want to get out from underneath them. Um, do you know how much short-term rentals got bought with low down payments? Because I, I was wondering if that is going to be concerned. Because a lot of people were structuring their deals as like oh, they had not owned properties, they wanted to get a new investment, and then they bought it with three to five percent down, owner occupied. You know, do you do you guys do you know what the data is behind that? Like how many transactions got done with with little bit of liquidity? Because, I mean, those are going to be very underwater properties in the next 12 months. I don't know exactly the share. Um, From what I understand, it should be relatively small. Uh, Now, there are some increased use of different loans. Uh, I'm trying to remember what they were uh, what they were called, Uh, but basically a loan structured solely banking on, you know, sufficient revenue from average bookings per night and at the average rental rate. As both those equations are changing and are going to change, then some of the assumptions that went into structuring these mortgages are definitely uh, problematic and could cause people to, you know, not only become underwater on their loan if, if equity falls, but also uh, not able to meet their uh, monthly mortgage just based off of the revenue from um, from the short-term rental market. Some of these people are opting to look for long-term rentals and some markets work favorably for that, like mid-sized cities, for example. Uh, but the destination resorts, mountain, mountain ski towns, uh, you know, lakeside, those aren't as favorable to finding long-term tenants either. So, uh, so it is problematic in some of those areas, um, certainly, but I, I'm not sure exactly the magnitude as to how popular you know, that is a lot of the buying normally happens with cash. And during the pandemic, we saw a bunch of you know people opt to jump on a mortgage because of the rates were so favorable until those restrictions went in place from Fannie and Freddie about higher uh, origination fees, for example. Um, it really was f- extremely favorable. Uh, you know, you're getting 3% on a second home loan as long as you had 20 or 25% down. Um, there were certainly some people putting less down, but those are, I think are a little bit more less, uh, well, little less common, more unique, um, overall for the short term rental market. But certainly we have, you know, seen that that's taken place. Yeah. And I noticed that that over the last like 12 to 
18 months, there was a lot of DSCR loans going on. It was like these uh, business loans that were getting structured that way with, uh, I mean, they were putting a little bit more money down on those loans. I think they, they would go up to like 80% loan to value, maybe 85%. But one thing that's a little scary is these loans have pretty nasty prepays on them where they're five year, five, four, three, two, ones. And, you know, it's so it, not only are they underwater with the equity, they're going to have to come up with the difference. For the, I mean, when you, let's say you bought a million dollar house and you have a prepay at four or five points that, that could, and then the market came down 20% off peak. I mean, that, that, that's a very substantially underwater asset. In addition to at the term of that loan, depending if they got two, three or four year terms, you know, in two years, their income might be so low to where, you know, people have to come in with a lot of cash to buy that loan back down. And that's where I'm kind of, I'm a little concerned with that market and those loans that were structured that way. Because if the income, like you said, is going down, the bank's going to want more money. And a lot of these people didn't have the money that, you know, that's why they went with the DSCR product. And, And that's a little terrifying at that point. That is dicey, man. I mean, you, you, you like so much of what we talk about, at least personally, why I don't think the the wheels are going to come off in the housing market. I think we'll see declines is that lending practices are so much better, but like uh, a DSCR is not a residential mortgage. That's a business loan. Like you said, James, and what James is saying about prepayment, that means is even if people sell it underwater, there's a penalty that the bank assesses for ending the loan early um, that people will have to come up with as well uh, so that that can put them further underwater. So that's pretty, uh, it's pretty dicey. Uh, well, Taylor, thank you so much. This has been a huge, huge help. Uh, always enjoy having you on the show. Uh, if people want to read your research or connect with you, where should they do that? Yeah, two Two places. So first, I'm on Twitter at Taylor A. Marr. Um, and then also, I you know write and contribute research to the Redfin blog. That's redfin.com slash news. And that's where you can see most of our data, research. We put out a weekly report covering the market, uh, as well as a bunch of other research. Thank you so much to Taylor Marr, who is the Deputy Chief Economist at Redfin. We really appreciate you coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, James. So what'd you think? Oh man, Taylor's great, man. I, I, I gotta say, he he might impress me almost just a little bit more than you on the data drops. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely impresses. I mean, I I look up to him. He he knows everything. I and most of the stuff I talk about, I'm just like copying what Taylor's talking about anyway. Yeah, he he definitely has it knows the stuff, and it was really interesting on the migration patterns. And then you know, one thing I with the inflation too and the migration like that was something i was reading up yesterday i i blew my mind i was like oh wow yeah the inflation is double or triple with the people moving there totally i i think two things taylor does like better than anyone is talk about migration he really has a grasp on on what what where people are moving why um obviously it impacts the housing market but it's just kind of interesting in general like if you're just curious about what motivates people to move and uh you should definitely check out his research but i thought that was so true like we talk on the show about how there's no quote-unquote national housing market and you need to look at your regional market to understand pricing but like you just said the same is true with inflation right like you look at phoenix the inflation rate is double that of la like you have to uh, factor that in when you consider what's happening in the housing market there, because like uh, not only are, did prices in houses go up in Phoenix f- faster than most places, but 
spending power is going down faster than most places in Phoenix. So it's getting like a, a one, two hit in affordability there. That's probably going to put a lot of downward pressure on prices. Yeah. It's kind of uh, smoke and mirrors. Like I was like, Oh yeah, everyone wants to go here because it's more affordable, but now you're paying double for everything else. But I mean, at the end of the day too, it's always short-term pain. Like they, they are, did go to a different market. They got a great rate, a lower payment and inflation will give up at some point. Uh, especially if the housing market cools down. Because I did see a lot of that stat was, I mean, a lot of the housing market did cause the the, the increase. But yeah, it's um, these migration patterns. I know I've always been a local investor in Washington, but as I'm watching these and learning more about these, it, it's definitely opening my eyes to invest in some other markets. Ooh, okay. We'll have, yeah. to, we'll have to follow up on that and see, see where you're going. But yeah, I, I thought the um, the encouraging thing, at least from an investor standpoint, about Taylor's uh, research is that the migration patterns are calming down. It was so hard to predict what was going on the last couple of years. Like you see these reports, but most like population data comes in like once a year. Like, so you don't really know even what's going on. You just like, sort of like hear anecdotally that everyone's moving to Austin or Phoenix or Boise. And it's hard to know, like, is it for real? Is it going to last? And to me, at least if you're investing in multiple markets or trying to pick a market to invest in, the best thing that can happen is that these one, the, the work from home situation and two, the migration patterns just become more predictable. Yeah. It's, I, I I think you're right. Like I have thought some of these cities were just surging. I mean, and part of it too is like where you were living, right? Like when I was down in California, a lot of people from California were going to Idaho or so was Washington. But then a lot of other states like the, the upper East Coast were going down to Florida. And so it kind of depended on what you're hearing. So, but yeah, those migration patterns, I, I, I knew it had an effect on the market, but it, I didn't really realize it had that much pull on the inflation, the cost, just everything across the board. Um, and, 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 you know, it did seem like people are moving out a lot rap more rapid, but you know, at the end of the day, I guess it, it, it shows that they're really not moving around that it was, it was maybe more hype than anything else. But, um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. I, I personally think that this is going to slow down quite a bit because once we go into a recession, I just remember in 2008 when we went into a recession, Everyone just kind of froze. Everything froze. And I think we're going to see that slow down for, for the short term. Um, and then it, maybe in 12, 24 months, people might, you know, figure out, you know, it's like the life after COVID. Okay. It's like you go through this weird thing, then you get settled, and then you really figure out what you want to do. Totally. Yeah. One of the interesting things I read about migration, too, is that a lot of migration is actually in state. It's like the majority. I forget. I'm not going to say a number because I don't remember what it is, but I think it's more than 50% of like migration is in state. So just using Seattle as another example, like people who are moving Seattle, even out of Seattle, even though some of them went to Boise or Austin or whatever, most of them went to like Bellevue, you know, or Tacoma or, or whatever, um, and somewhere else. And Based on what you were saying about people like being like, eh, I don't like this so much. I wonder if some of that will actually start to reverse. Like if you uh, live in, uh, you know, you moved to rural Washington during the pandemic because you could. And now you're like, eh, maybe I'll move back to the city where there's better jobs and at least for me, better restaurants. I don't know. We'll see if that uh, if that starts to reverse. Yeah, that pricing on that rural property went through the roof and it was like. It, the further, it, you know, real estate's always been the closer you are to the metro, the more expensive it gets. And it, it COVID broke all those rules. And I do feel like those rules are coming back into play right now. Like we're seeing those out. 
like pro- people want to land and they wanted quietness from COVID. Now they're, I think they're bored and they're like, I got to get back into the hustle bustle of the city. I want good restaurants. I don't want chain restaurants. I want to, you know, they, they want to live life the way that they're used to living. Totally. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully Taylor agrees to come back every couple of months because he, he's the master of this and uh, we can continue to pick his brain. I hope so. I hope you have me on with him. All right. Well, throw your name in the hat. You'll be here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bug Kaylin. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks a lot, James. Appreciate you being here. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.